You're listening to episode 353 of the GNU World Order. My name is Klaatu, and in this episode, I want to relay to you how I accidentally got, I don't know, 20 people using open source and free software on a weekly basis. But first, we have some listener correspondence. It's not listener email this time, it's just correspondence, because CRVS reached out to me on Mastodon, which you can also do if you're on Mastodon. You can uh, friend or follow or whatever we call it on Mastodon in exact URL format. That would be mastodon.xyz slash at, the, the at symbol, Klaatu. And that will bring you to my profile, and you can uh, follow me or, or message me, and so on. The correspondence that I received uh, over Mastodon was from CRVS, who is a, a pal of mine on the internet, and he says that he was going through the backlog of GNU World Order, Season 12, Episode 34, and as I was hearing your comments on the Char utility, I decided to give it a try, and noticed that it produces not only a text file, but a shell script which extracts and verifies the contents when it's run. So the point of it seems to be that you don't need to have Char utils installed to then uncompress the archive. You just need a POSIX shell. I don't know, I guess I didn't realize that at the time, and I probably didn't think to take note of it, and I haven't really thought about Char ever since. But knowing that that's the point of it now makes me kind of want to look at it again, because that is that does seem awfully useful. Um, a, I like these things that sort of encapsulate things and then are essentially self-extracting the entities later on. Because, I mean, that is kind of the, the latent fear of everyone, that you're going to that you're going to tar up, or not tar maybe, but you're going to um, archive some data only to find 20 years later, 30 years later, that that technology has gone by the wayside. And you'll just be sitting there thinking, man, I really wish I hadn't archived it. I wish I'd just kept it in some folders and put it on that backup drive and left it in in a state that I could actually access. And I think that this is a latent fear for a lot of us who who have had experiences with non-open technology that have not been that long-lasting. I, I don't know that this is a, a real concern on any other platform, but definitely having grown up on a Mac computer, there was a archiving format, and people who used Macs know this, because, I mean, on Mac, there was literally, there wasn't a zip format for a long time, or at least not that I knew of. Maybe maybe there was, and I was just too young to understand that you could go actually acquire software that your parents hadn't already put onto your computer, I don't know. But there was uh, an an archive format that when I was using these computers I would use because it was the thing that that you had and inevitably there would be a time later on that I would realize that I don't have access to that archive format anymore or the the unarchiver anymore and it was a real problem it was a real um it was not fun to have stuff in an archive that you could not access even if you knew it, you know that well I could I can find a mac I can load this file onto it I can download the necessary software and then I can unarchive it and then it's taken care of but all of those steps to access your own data is I think admittedly a little bit annoying it is something that that feels wrong and so you don't like to have to do it so char sounds like a great little a great little format because you just don't have to worry about ever being unable to then 
you know, the software to unarchive it is is apparently self-contained. Now, there's something similar to that, something fairly-ish new, I guess, maybe, called MakeSelf. I think I've probably talked about it on this show before at some point in the history, but it's MakeSelf.io. It makes a self-extractable archive on Unix, MakeSelf.sh, and it ends up with a .run suffix. And if if you've ever had a... um, There there are games that have been put into these, I think, from GOG.com, and I think NVIDIA probably uses this for their .run distributables. So it's something that you probably have seen if you're a a long-time Linux user, or or rather a diverse Linux user, someone who gets stuff from a lot of different places. You've probably run across this. Maybe not. Possibly not. Oh, I think Humble Bundle was was also releasing some things in a .run archive for a while, too. So yeah, you'll you'll have seen it, possibly. And and the concept is, is the same more or less. It is it, one of those things where the thing that you distribute is also the thing that, or, or or you can distribute something with the thing, or the thing itself is something that, that then unarchives itself. I think it's a, a really nice benefit of using these kinds of formats. Whether or not I will actually use a char archive or not, I, I don't know, because I do have a lot of faith in tar. I really do, and I know it well, and it seems to work pretty well for me. Um, and for these kinds of utilitarian things, I don't, I don't tend to switch things up too much. But you never know. I might, I might actually try this one just because it does. It's always worth, you know, investigating, right? So, um, yeah, I'm really glad CRVS noticed that and told me about it. I certainly, um, I feel, I feel like I know more about Char now. So thank you. Okay, so next up, we're going to talk about, um, about this thing. Uh, that I wanted to sort of ramble on about a little bit. It's it's about how I accidentally got a bunch of people using free and open source software um, at least once a week. And as as is often the case, this personal anecdote uh, hopefully sort of extends into a philosophical discussion. Um, and so I'll just kind of I'll, I'll I'll give you one and then the other. So the the personal anecdote is simply that I have been uh, running some games online, some uh, role playing games. So it's it's all it takes really is you log on at an agreed time with a, a voice chat is all you really need because it's it's a narrative process. If you've ever uh, played a role playing game, or if not, maybe you've seen it on on TV or something. But the 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 idea is that there you know it's like a board game but without a board so you're you're playing through a scenario that one person sort of knows everything that's going to happen and the other people have to kind of navigate their way through this story so it's a little bit like a guessing game or maybe it's a little bit like um a one of those um what do you call them an exquisite corpse uh, where you where you're each building a story together with, by by contributing different components a little bit of all of that but with actual rules and and goals that you're supposed to achieve through the game it's a lot of fun and it's something that I've been doing recently a lot of because of the global pandemic that we're still a part of as humans on the planet Earth. So uh, I, I decided that while while everyone is sort of stuck at home, it might be fun to connect over the internet and play this narrative game. So the, the to keep everything simple and low bandwidth and, and so on, I decided to simply use a voice chat application, because that's all, as I've said, that's kind of really all you need, um, as, as, everyone, as, ever, as long as everyone has the information that they that they're required to play their part, 
which is all just written down anyway. So you can you can have it literally in a in a hardcover book, or you can have it as a as a file on your computer. It kind of just it depends on on what you have access to. You don't really need to see anything. You you can do the whole process through voice only communication. So I decided because it's what I've always used for voice communication over the computer ever since probably I think Linux Cranks is the the first time I used that which uh, Linux Cranks was this old uh, sort of ridiculous podcast that I was a part of where we just kind of really just talked for hours about Linux stuff it was um highly unstructured and mostly an excuse for a bunch of friends to hang out online so uh, they were using Mumble, and I think, if I recall correctly, we were using Mumble because it could record all the different sides of the conversation locally. So you could have your conversation recorded on its own track, or, or rather, your voice recorded on a dedicated track. Someone else would have their voice recorded on a dedicated track, and then someone at the end of the process could take all those tracks, merge them together, and release them as a, a relatively clean interference-free kind of um, release. Now, I, I don't want to go on record saying that that's the correct way to do a remote podcast, because I actually think it's not. It is much better, far, far better, and this is how people do it sort of in the professional, with with very significant air quotes, uh, professional podcasting world. You purchase, you literally purchase each participant their own digital recorder, their physical digital recorder, and you have each participant record themselves locally on that digital recorder. So they're speaking into their microphone for their for their call, and they're speaking at the same time into the digital recorder for the local recording. And then you take that digital recording, you send it to the to the mixer, to the person who's going to put all of it together. They mix it all together, and then it, it literally sounds like the people are sitting in the same room because, for all intents and purposes, they may as well have been because they're all local they're all local recordings, so the, the, the microphone, they may as well have been sharing the same microphone. And in a way, they have been. It's just different physical microphones. But you've got the same digital recorder in front of every single participant. I just want to get that out there on record because there's a lot of misunderstanding about how how to sort of how to record people over a podcast and make it re- remotely and make it sound like it's it's in the same place and it doesn't sound like it's over a VoIP call, which is of course exactly what it was over. That's the right way to do it. Just feel the urge to get that out there because there's a lot of people who don't seem to understand that. And I get that it's cost prohibitive a lot of times. Like if I could do that for everyone I ever talked to um, online, that would be amazing. That would be great. I mean, everyone I ever want to interview online, that would be great. Can't really do it. It's expensive to buy. It's expensive to ship out, etc. Um, but that is the correct way to do it. It can be done. It should be done that way if you can if you can swing it. Now I've said it. It's on record. Okay, so moving on to the topic at hand. Um, so we do this thing. We do it over voice voice uh, communication, and we've we're, we're using Mumble, or rather, I know of Mumble. That's the tool, my go-to tool. When someone says, "Hey, I want to do a voice chat on the internet." The first thing that comes to my mind is Mumble. Now, I have learned in the recent past that there are other tools for this job. There are that there is, uh, for instance, Ma- instance Matrix. Matrix is a it, Matrix.org. You can go there. It is a um, let's call it an IRC alike. It is a text chat application that runs 
well, it runs on the matrix servers, and you can dial into those matrix servers, as it were. You can join a server and chat with other people, just like any any sort of modern chat application with, with text. You can stay logged in because the server exists over on, on matrix, so you can sort of authenticate and have your 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 entity on that server uh, and you can sort of go between your mobile device and your computer and another computer and so on because no matter where you go there you are so i invite people to these games that i'm that i'm running uh, including you dear listener if you want to play in a game i, I have a couple of sessions that are either uh, missing a per- down a person or or maybe that will come up later feel free to um contact me a couple of you already have uh, and i don't think i've made it explicit that you're all invited i meant to in that special episode when i was talking about us being in a pandemic but just in case if you want to play an rpg online with someone who you are vaguely familiar with that would be me then uh, feel free feel free to invite yourself just shoot me an email clatu at member.fsf.org and um, ask about times and dates and i will give you the availability it is limited availability right now, but I only run each game for four to six weeks, once a week, so they kind of have the opportunity to refresh after a while. So it may not be an immediate thing, but eventually you might find something. Back to the point at hand, I've invited these people to these sessions, right? Really without thinking about it, I simply told everyone that we were going to use a client called Mumble that they could download and install and call into this specific server at this specific time and we would play the game. And I did this without thinking about it, and I think that's part of the real lesson here, and so we're going to hear more about that point in the future, in the very near future. But I, I... I did this without questioning the the tool that I was choosing. And next thing I know, I'm dealing with a lot of people every week who are all on the Mumble client playing a game together using nothing but free and open source software um, outside of whatever stack they're running it on. Obviously, not all people are running this on Linux. Um, a good, a handful of them are because I know them through, through circles of, of podcasts and so on, but, and, and some, some from work and so on. So, so there's a, there's a handful of people using, using this technology already, uh, a full open stack, but, but others are, are on whatever they happen to be running Mumble, which in terms of major wins of the, uh, of the year, th- this isn't one of them, right? This is not a big deal. But the thing that I wanted to highlight, because it's the thing that kind of occurred to me after the fact, after it was all said and done, it it it, it occurred to me all of a sudden that I I got I I, I quote got people to to use an open source application without any kind of self doubt or trepidation or fear that it might be. Uh, a, a big request for them to do this, and so on. It was simply, it was a natural thing. It was something born of such, uh, I guess, blissful ignorance that, or, or just casual assumption that that it just happened. I just said, hey, meet here at this time using this application. And that happened. It, it happened on Sunday, UTC Sunday. It happened on UTC Wednesday, UTC Thursday and UTC uh, Friday, 
I think that no Saturday, sorry. That's four four games where it just kind of all of a sudden people were were using collections of four to five people were all just invisibly casually using this open source software. Again, this is not a big deal. I get that. I get that this is actually not a big deal at all. But what I want to highlight here is it's a couple of different things. So first of all, the way that the way that it occurred. The way that it occurred was that I that I had in mind a solution. And so when organizing an event, I very very literally just defaulted to that solution or or you could say it a different way by by which I defaulted to open source for a solution. I knew that I needed to gather a bunch of people together online. I've I've seen it done, I've heard it done on several different uh, podcasts, like I say, Linux Cranks does it, Hacker Public Radio does it for their community call each month. So this is a tool that I rely on and that I trust and that I knew would work well. And so that's what I chose to use. And there was never any moment where, because I didn't think about it, I just, there was never a moment where I thought, uh, maybe I should recommend, maybe I should, just in case, maybe I should, I should use Discord. Or, um, or you know, whatever tool there is out there. What what is it called? Team Team Chat or Team Team something. So I thought I never thought of those things. Partly, obviously, because I don't actually know what the solutions are. I do know that Discord exists, um, and I know that some people do use it for RPG. So, I, but I I never thought of that. I never thought, oh, I should I should do that because that's what people will be familiar with. Well, no, I didn't think about that because, first of all, as I'm trying to... Really, the the main takeaway here for for this point is that I was so comfortable with the solution that it didn't occur to me to question the solution. And I don't think that we always do that. I think sometimes, especially as open source enthusiasts, we were a little bit nervous to propose, well, how how come we're not doing it with this application here? And and sometimes it's because well you know people will will look down upon that application because it's open source and people are silly about open source and sometimes you know there's this ancient ancient old thing about oh open source you get what you pay for blah 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 so I think sometimes that's the source of the anxiety about that other times it's just a fear of of suggesting something different sometimes it's because you don't feel like you have the authority to suggest something different and so on. Uh, and in this case, I had the the unique advantage of being in a place where I wasn't suggesting something contrary to anything. I was simply suggesting something. But I think that's an important place to be anyway. If you're driving something and the the idea is yours, you know, there's there is no there is no former thing that you are displacing. You are simply coming up with a new idea. And I'm not saying I came up with a new idea here, but I am saying no one else was running a a get together, a meetup together for this specific for these specific groups of people. And so, since I was the um, catalyst or the impetus for this gathering, I got to call the shots. I got to say, "Well, this is what we'll use for this." Now, if you're ever in that position, I feel, and when I say you, I mean all of us, me and you, dear listener, when we find ourselves in such a position. I think it's very important to confidently and sublimely fall back upon open source. Your your tool choice, your first choice, ought to be open source. 
if if you are an open source enthusiast, you want to show that open source is a viable solution, then it needs to be the solution that you fall back on, or or rather default to. It is the thing that you just assume every everyone else is is using and or willing to use. And there's no question about that in your mind. And why should there be? I mean, how many times have you ever been proposed something by by someone putting something together? That was a lot of somethings and someones in one sentence. Um, but you've been proposed something, and and they say, okay, well we're going to use you know this this solution, whether it's I don't know Discord or um, I don't know uh, I don't know what other applications there are out there that aren't open source now. Drawing a blank, um, but there are those applications out there that are not open source, and and people suggest them frequently. It's just kind of the it's it's everyone else's default sometimes, and so and they certainly don't stop. They don't pause and say, um, oh, or would you rather use something open source? Is it uh, is it okay if we use something? People don't do that. They just assume that if you've got a computer, you can get this application, you will get this application, and then you will use it. Um, I mean, how many video calls in the past month or so have you been invited to on a on a proprietary software as a service platform? So that's that's the point, right? Default to those open source solutions. Show everyone that 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 that's the obvious solution is the open source one, the one that's secure, the one that's that's uh, auditable, the one that's maybe encrypted sometimes. You know, whatever the benefit is. That's the one to just lean on and and bring that to the table right away. No questions asked. Now, I will admit that someone asked me, and um, this the, the person who asked me had never heard of Mumble before. And, and so he said, um, why can we just use Discord? And for a moment there, I kind of, uh, you know, I felt that sort of, that anxiety rise up. You know, that sort of like, well, pers- someone's challenging my decision or, or the the tool that I want to use um what's going on are they do, do they not like it because it's open source you know all the all the thoughts you have um and it turns out upon a quick email it was just that he hadn't heard of mumble before and when I told him that um I mean I gave him a couple of reasons and one was that well that's where my other games are like all the games that I'm running are in this location and so it's just easier for me to keep steady with with the same setup and not to not to bounce around but i also cited specifically that mumble was an open source application and discord was not and um frankly once he heard that it was open source he was uh he was sold on it he just hadn't heard of it before so it was um pretty easy actually so um there you go that's that's the first principle it's just the default make it your default it's an important principle that i think sometimes we forget and we we talk ourselves out of we think well no one's heard of that application or or everyone's heard of it you know we make up this story everyone's heard of it and no one likes it because it's open source or whatever and that's just so often not the case so don't worry about it just default to the thing that you default to and i think a corollary to that is that in a very real sense um you need to default to the thing that you have confidence in if you default to the thing that you have confidence in then two things are going to happen. One is that it's not going to let you down, or uh, two, it's going to let you down, and then you know its weak points. You, you've stress-tested it successfully. And that's those are both that's both really good data points. Um, now, Mumble I felt pretty darn confident in, um, and for the most part, I will say that it has performed 
brilliantly, and the places where it where 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 there have been problems has not been because of mumble. It's been users who um, are confused with really the process of of chatting without introducing feedback and so on. And frankly, that's hard for anybody. I mean, it's just it de- it depends so heavily on your setup, whether your um whether your speakers are far enough away from your mic, and sometimes you have no control over that because your mic and your speakers are built into a laptop, so you can't really control how far away. And then do you have a good headset? Do you have a headset at all? A lot of people weren't really expecting to be in a pandemic and in a lockdown, so it may not may not be that they've got the optimal, ideal streaming setup. But truth is, I mean, if you're relying on something, or, if, or rather if you're confident in something, then then stress testing it is actually a really good thing uh, and it can be painful sometimes because uh you know some things will will kind of strike back i mean some things will fail things will will sort of for lack of a better term disappoint you it will let you down and and that is tough because you think oh this thing is so great but the minute i introduce it to for chaos monkeys uh, it breaks down but i mean that's really good data for you that's that's something that's important and it's something you may as well learn now rather than going on for months and years believing something is super super robust um and you know half the time and i because this has happened to me i've introduced something thinking well there's no way this thing will fail me i use it all the time i have complete confidence in it and then you introduce it into a into the wild and people break it in all kinds of different ways. And uh, most of the time, nine times out of ten, what that tells me is that the setup needs to be better. In, in other words, the, the way that that person interfaces with that application needs to be clearer. In, in other words, the user needs more training. That's, that's what I have usually found. And that's fine. That's something that you can solve. That is a, that is a thing that you can generally resolve kind of depends on the user sometimes to be honest but i mean and how much time you you need to invest in in the training and so on but but you get the idea so it's it's an important thing um to have to to develop confidence in an application and then to to assert that confidence and to assert that application into your daily interactions uh, with people that need open source software solutions this is uh this is an important thing and the the way that you um so this is another corollary to to the corollary, which is the way that you build confidence is, of course, that you use the software. And that's that's such a key thing. And I feel like, especially today on the Internet, there are so many articles out there. There are so many blog posts out there. There are so much sort of open source uh, zeitgeist type of thing, th- type of uh, posts and, and sites that, that talk about a solution – or a, a product or a project that they have heard about from something or somewhere, or they've done a search through a um, through a, a package management system of some sort. They've discovered something that claims to be a, a, an application f- for such and such, and so then they write about it and they post about it and they act all excited about it and they maybe they even go to the trouble of installing the application and launching it once. But very often they don't know exactly how to do the thing, and so they sort of um, they sort of fumble around, assume that it's you know assume that the screenshots that they take of the the very basic setup is is accurate, or or is uh, adequate rather, and and they post about it, and they just kind of take the word for of the project that it is a thing that that it claims to be. So, 
it, it's a, it's it's tough because then the specialists in that realm look at that and think well, that's not really the tool that I would be promoting as the Linux answer to such and such. It, you know, it, it has happened frequently for me, and I'm sure it must have happened frequently for a lot of other people. And I think it's it's it doesn't do I I don't believe it does really any service to anyone to convey that kind of information. So in other words, confidence is developed by experience, actual experience. In other words, if you think that you've found the solution for some thing, for some task, some equivalent of some application that you're looking to replace, and I've talked about this before on the show, you you have to audition it. And not just audition it, but you have to put it through its paces. And if that means that you sit down and write a test scenario, a test case for, or a test script really, for what you're looking for in an application, and then you run through that test script with that application. And when I say test script, I don't mean a computerized script. I just mean literally take a take an old envelope from from your from from your junk mail pile and and just jot down some notes. In this application, I can record from such and such a microphone. Okay, in this application, I can record from several streams at once. In this application, I can export to this format and so on. Right. You take all those requirements and you audit your chosen application for those solutions. Does it do those things? And if it can't, can you live without the thing that it can't do? Is that going to be the deal breaker or is that something that you can kind of get your way around happily? And, you know, I mean, if if you haven't done that, then you don't truly have confidence in the application. I mean, you may, but it would be probably, I would argue, misplaced confidence. So you want that that assurance. You want the experience with an application to develop the confidence, and then you want the confidence to develop that sort of the blissful, sort of unacknowledged default ownership, the sense of ownership over this application, that it makes it the obvious choice for some task. And if you don't have that, I do think it's a little bit of a harder sell, not just for the people that you're proposing starts start using the application but but also for yourself and if you can't sell it on yourself you can't sell it on other people or so i've so i've been told i don't know i I can't sell anything to be honest but that's what people tell me okay so another another thing that i think is a is an interesting takeaway from all of this is that when you uh talk yourself out of suggesting an open source application i feel like there's an unspoken assumption being made about other people which is you're you're assuming that they don't want to use open source. You're assuming that they can't use open source, or that they won't use open source, or that open source is too complex, or or whatever it is. Whatever, who knows what it is? I mean, half the time we're not doing it consciously, so I don't think we actually even really know what we're assuming. We're we, but we are making an assumption, right? I mean, the only reason we would not suggest an open source solution to an, uh, to to a, a thing that needs to get done is because we're assuming something, whether it's, as I say, some, well, people wouldn't want to use that. My upper management would never approve that application. That user, this is a little bit too technical for that user. Whatever it might be, it's there, there's that assumption being made without any kind of conversation, and that's a really, really weird thing to do. And it's something that's done to you and me, dear listener, all the time, as I've said. I mean, people suggest some some closed source application for some task all the time. I mean, it happens every day. And and there's not really, very frequently, there's not a dialogue about that. Um, a lot of times the, the dialogue happens 
if that closed application requires payment, because then there's the question of, well, are you going to pay for that, or do I have to pay for this? That's that's the conversation. But there's there's very rarely a conversation of, hey, we want to use this proprietary application. You can download it for free, or I'll just assume that you got it on your computer when you bought your computer, um, and that's it. I mean, there's no that that's that goes unsaid. That is the implied assumption. Well, that is the assumption being made, and it's such an outrageous assumption. You know, looking at it from the other way, it's an outrageous assumption. It it's it assumes so much about you as a computer user that you don't, you know, that you use the same OS that they do, that you got the same bundled software that they do, or that you're perfectly happy to download this application from a company that you know nothing about and run it on your computer and so on. But it's suggested all the time. It's it's a very very common thing. So why not suggest the open source thing? Why not like? By by not suggesting the open source thing, you're kind of doing the same thing. You're saying, well, I'm going to assume that you can't use, you won't use open source. You don't like open source. You're, you're you don't trust open source. Whatever the assumptions are. Whereas suggesting it by nature of the of it of it being open source, it makes none of the assumptions that they make when suggesting proprietary software. So if they're if, if they're assuming that you're using the same OS and you suggest using something OS uh, something something open source, well. Now you're you, usually uh, you're not assuming anything about their operating system because many many big open source projects are cross-platform at this point. So you're you're not really making an assumption there. I mean, granted, some proprietary software is cross-platform as well, so you can't really say that there's a there's an assumption being made all the time. But certainly, if you're thinking about um, trustworthiness, of course, obviously open source they could they could if they really wanted to they could audit the code, which you have no option to do. Uh, if it's a proprietary software, if there's any kind of money or subscription in, in, involved um, for open source, that wouldn't apply. Whereas proprietary, it would apply, and so on. Even 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 the you know the the the, the technical assumption, the assumption that oh well, this person wouldn't be able to use this. This is open source, and they're gonna have to look they're gonna look over here for a button, and they I know that that they're usually they're used to that button being over there on the right instead. Like what a weird weird set of kind of assumptions those are. But I mean. And I guess you could you could probably argue it's somehow technically elitist or, or something like that, where you're just assuming that this regular person isn't quote unquote technical enough to use this open source product. Now, granted, a lot of people in, enforce that themselves. They say, "Oh, I can't, I can't do that because I'm not a technical person." I get that, but I mean, frankly, those those people generally or very frequently are going to say the same thing about proprietary software if you try to spring a new proprietary software on them. But but what a crazy assumption it is to think that, that people are happy to just download a new application and, and learn it and start using it without any kind of hit to productivity. Like, how strange is that? I mean, I don't even know where, for instance, Zoom came from. I'd never even heard of it until the pandemic, and suddenly everyone's using Zoom all over the place. Well, not everyone, but um, it certainly crops up a lot more now. I mean, previously, I thought the the, the solutions for that were uh, Google Hangout or Skype. Those were the two solutions that I knew of uh, for the proprietary world. I knew of quite a few other open source ones. I knew that uh, Signal could do one-to-one calls. I knew that uh, Jitsi could do group calls. And I knew that Jammy could do one-on-one calls. And Nextcloud does one-on-one calls. So I, I knew quite a few open source solutions. I just didn't know that there were other ones. And, and suddenly everyone's talking about this weird video conferencing software that 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 not only requires you to uh, download an app like an application to run it. I think. I mean, at least anytime I've been invited to a Zoom call and tried to join, it's been uh, an hour of me trying to install the thing without 
installing it without committing to it too much, you know, because I don't really actually want to install it, but I need to be in the meeting. So it kind of, luckily that seems to have tapered off now that Zoom has sort of had to admit that they um, are, are really bad at security, apparently. So that, that has apparently tapered off a little bit, and I've gotten a lot more Jitsi um, invitations in the past month than I have anything else, which is great. But the, my, my point there is that there's no difference in assuming, hey, you should download this software. There's no difference between saying that, whether the software is open or closed source. It doesn't really matter one way or the other. You, you can, it's a bold assertion either way. And in the modern world, I think um, most people are more or less used to this being part of computing. There are new applications out there that you've never had to use before, and sometimes you just gotta you, you gotta learn use them. You gotta learn them a little bit. You don't have to become an expert, maybe, but you gotta learn it just a little bit. And it's okay. It's it's fine whether the thing is open source or proprietary. It's it's a normal thing, especially if it's cross-platform. It's uh, really a good thing when it's open source because that's a tool that everyone has access to, and we talk a lot about that in open source. I think. I've, I've kind of mentioned that before as well, that a lot of us open source enthusiasts, one of the reasons we're into this, that we, we, we spend so much time doing this, is this idea that information and the ability to compute and communication and all that other stuff should be accessible to everyone. And when we say that, we I think we have kind of in mind some some archetype that we that that has that has inspired us or 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 prodded us into becoming a, an enthusiast for open source you know whether it is um a, a child somewhere that you knew that that didn't have access to uh computers or whether it's uh an, an older person in your life who who is struggling to understand how their computer works that some uh, greasy salesperson sold to them you know, a computer that that was at the end of its lifespan anyway, and can barely run—I don't know—Windows 8 or something—and and now they're struggling with it. And just whatever it is, whatever the scenario is, someone who can't afford it, a college student who's trying to complete their work and can't afford a new computer, and so they're struggling with this old computer. You know, whatever the case may be, there's something in in many of our lives that that we look at, either whether it's in the mirror uh, or in our own past or just something that we've witnessed. And we think that should not happen in the modern world. We we have an answer to this. It is open source. Why don't we all adopt this? I mean, it's just so obvious to all of us, right? But it's an important principle that at least you and I, dear listener, we share. We want people to have access to, to information and to computation and to the ability to communicate over across the entire globe this is you know these are the sort of the high lofty ideals of technology and it's really only open source that is fulfilling those ideals right i mean yes some of those things are technically being achieved in proprietary software but by nature of it being proprietary it fails on that one main heading which is accessible to everyone so by promoting open source that's what you're promoting. You're promoting smart, universal, accessible, free, and liberated technology. And that's nothing you should ever, ever feel strange about, feel anxious about, or be shy about. It's something that you should do. You should do it proudly, 
and you should do it often. Promote open source software by using open source software. And when you're collaborating with others in the real world, have that collaboration happen using open source tools. It's the best way to show people what open source is capable of. Put it in their hands, let them use it, use it with them, and prove your point. That is everything I have to say about that subject, which means it's the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. listening to the GNU World Order AUGcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AUGcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. This far inside the head, it all looks the same. No, 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 don't tug on that. You never know what it might be attached to. <laughs>